Last Sunday, um, I closed my sermon by giving you a challenge. And I, I listened to my sermon a couple of times last week. Um, I record it and I put it up on our church website. But I listened to it a couple times last week, intentionally wanting to hear what I said to make sure that I said what I thought I wanted to say. But also to remind me as I was preparing for this week's sermon, I wanted to remind myself what I said because as, as you may remember, I told you that we're, we're progressing through 1 John and um, this passage, this section that we're in right now is chapter 3 of 1 John verses 11 through 24. But we're taking it bite-sized pieces. So last week, we looked at verse 11 through 16. This week, we're going to be looking at 17, 18, and 19. But as a way of bringing us back into what we were talking about last week, I wanted to remind you, I challenged you last week. I said, I don't want anybody to raise your hand or make any faces or make any indication, but I want you to look around the room. And I want you to see who it is in the room that's a part of this church that you love the least. And then I asked you to prayerfully be discerning how you could get to love them better in the coming days, but to not do it in a way that they would know that you're doing it. Okay? And that was where we left it last week. Well, there was so much more that I wanted to say, but we only have so many minutes on any given Sunday. So I've, I'm going to pick it up at that point, okay? You were left last week with the idea, who do you love the least in this church? And a challenge to try and figure out ways that you could love that person even more. And that you could express it to them. And I use the word surreptitiously, and I'm not sure if some of you caught that word. But surreptitious means to do it without being seen. Okay? On the sly. Do it in a way that is not noticed so that you can do what's, a, what's necessary but not get any glory for it. Now that's not fun, Pastor. I want to feel good about what I'm doing. You can feel good without getting the accolade. Okay? Now, let's look at the next three passage, next three verses in this section. Um, so we're going to start at 17... And read through 19. Like I said, we could read all the way through, but it's just, it, we have to take it in bite-sized chunks or we're just, we're going to get way out of our time. Verse 17 starts, but if anyone has the world's goods, and what that basically means is if you've got money and a place to live and clothes and food and a good car. If any of you has good, the world's goods and sees your brother or sister in need, and yet closes your heart against them. How does God's love abide in you? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, before God. Now, again, I could go on and read more, um, but the problem is... The problem is, is that uh, there, it goes off into a tangent that I didn't want to look at this morning. So I just wanted to focus on that. Now, when I was working on this sermon, what I did was I read 
I read in the Old Testament, I mean, I read in, in the Message, I read in the Amplified Bible, I read in the Living New Living Translation, I read in the New Century Version, just trying to get a different nuance in the way that the words were being expressed. And I wanted to share with you some of the things that I learned just through reading various translations of the Bible. So, at the very bottom of this screen, you'll see it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, and NLT stands for the New Living Translation. Okay, This is not a paraphrase, because back in the 70s, there was the Living Bible, which was an actual, which was a paraphrase. Somebody said, well, this is what, my, my best guess of what the Bible's talking about. This is an actual translation, went to the old, to the original languages, and it now translated into English. This was done by a team of people, but it's called the New Living Translation. Verse 17 says, if someone has enough money to live well, and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion. How can God's love be in that person? And that word compassion just gripped me as I was reading through and studying this. And I went back to all the different translations. I mean, I have, I have like 20 Bibles on my iPad, and I have like 15 or 20 Bibles physical Bibles on my shelf in my office, and I went back and looked, and I, of the ones that I looked at, the only one that had the word compassion was the New Living Translation. Some said pity, some said uh, mercy. What does your Bible say, by the way? If you've got it open, what does it say in verse 17? Now everybody opens up their Bible. <laughs> if he shuts up his heart. Okay. Says pity. You must have NIV. Okay. Anybody else? That's okay. If you don't have it, it's not that big of a deal. But verse seventeen. What is that word in your in your Bible? Yeah, closes his heart against it. Okay. So, but Beverly and Elsie have closes his heart. What What do you think of? When you hear the word compassion, what do you what do you think of? What what is it? What is the mental image that you get when when you hear the word compassion? Touchy feely. Touchy feely. Okay. So you being aware that they're suffering. But you don't want them to feel embarrassed that you're paying attention to their suffering, so you come alongside them some way to try and help meet the need without affecting their dignity. Is that a better way, a good way to say it? Okay, Dana, you were going to say A person with empathy. What is empathy? I always hate it when the dictionary tells me another word to define a word, and then I have to look up the other word. And, but what do you, what does the word empathy mean to you? Because I like that word. Okay. So you, you're able to sense. They're emotionally, on their level, you can, you can connect with that person. Uh huh. And, um, relate to that person and show, you feel for them. Okay. It's a very deep love for humanity and just a, a very strong and speaking sense with, with people. So, so having a base of love. Being aware of the world around you and trying to somehow connect with them in a way that you can, I don't want to say feel the way they feel, but you know what I'm saying. Being 
Okay. Literally putting yourself in their place. Putting yourself in their I mean, place. It, it's you, humbling yourself to step into their space. Okay. To feel the need and the desire to help someone. Is that what I heard you say? Okay. Where did you get that? Myself. Okay. For compassion. If I have compassion towards somebody, I have the need and feeling. The old school version for pity was to have, to, to forgive pity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Somebody over here was going to say something? Wanting the best for somebody. Okay. Um, <clears throat> compassion, I, 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 it's a word I'm familiar with, but at the same time I was like, what is compassion? And I, I wanted to break it up, and just without doing any research, I said, well, if I were to break that up and look at the roots of that word, compassion, compassion. So I'm thinking, come probably means with, passion, love, to have love with or to be in love with, maybe, to care for, I don't know. So then I, then I took the step and I looked up the etymology of the word compassion. Well, I found out that the word compassion comes from the old French, which comes from Latin. And this is what compassion from the Latin means. Com, C-O-M, means to be together, to be with. Pati means to suffer. So compassion means to suffer together. Now, if you have compassion for someone, if you go with this idea of compassion, it literally means that you do a Mother Teresa or a Good Samaritan. You get on your hands and your knees and you wipe up the blood and the saliva and the feces and whatever all else needs to be taken care of and you truly suffer with that person. See, there's a, there's a great difference between talking about compassion and actually living compassionately. Let me give you a for instance. In our culture in the United States right now, there is an incredible conversation going on from all sides about a group of people, thousands strong, who are walking across the South American and Central American continent coming to our southernmost border. If you have not connected with the news in any way, form, or fashion over the last number of weeks, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have connected with the news or social media over the last number of weeks, you know that this group of people is known in the, in the common vernacular as the caravan. And this is a group of people who are coming to the United States with the hope that, that's at least that we're being told. The hope that they can emigrate, that they can become part of our culture, part of our society, because they have a safer place here to live, or a better opportunity for themselves, or whatever their motivation, but they're coming. 
And now you can see pundits on television and you can hear people talking over coffee shop tables and you can hear people in their own homes talking about what needs to happen. Now, I think I said it last week in my sermon and if I did, great. If I didn't, I said it someplace in this community in a public setting. I said... One of the problems that we have in our culture today is that the church gave up its authority and its responsibility to minister in the name of Jesus and to minister with love to those who had need, who were suffering. And as a result, that void then got filled with the social programs of our of our country, whether it's. You know, the, 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 the federal government or the state government or even the local government trying to meet the need because the churches weren't doing it. If the churches would have done what they were supposed to have done in the first place, I don't think we would be dealing with a lot of what we've dealt with over the last 20 to 30 to 40 years in our, in our culture. Now, having said all of that, it's because we love to sit around and talk. We love to sit around and discuss what needs to happen because it's very, very sanitary. I can discuss the needs of a group of people who are coming to the southernmost border of my country because I'm in the northernmost border of my country and it doesn't impact my life other than philosophically. But I honestly thought this week as I was looking at this and I thought, God, is there even anything I could do if you called me to, to help the plight of people who are struggling. Now, I'm not just talking about the caravan. I'm talking about period. Anybody. Who in the world is struggling right now that I could help? Legitimately. Who could I show the love of Christ to? Now, then I got into what I talked about last week was, well, this is actually talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. So as I was reflecting this week on this, I was like, well, this idea of showing compassion, he's literally saying, John is literally saying to this church, the compassion needs to be shown to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not addressing showing compassion to the world. Mm. To the letter of the law, yes, that's exactly what John was doing in this letter. He was addressing a local congregation with a local situation, and he was addressing what they were going through. But it was based on the greater teachings of Jesus Christ, which the greater teachings of Jesus Christ are, you love every single human being as you love yourself. You show compassion to them. And compassion by the definition is to get down in the dirt with those who are down in the dirt and to get your fingernails dirty and crudded up with all of their gunk. Or if their vehicle is broken down, you get grease under your nails. Or if they need somebody to come alongside them because they're sick, you clean up their vomit. That's what compassion is. It's so easy for us to write a check. It's so easy for us to just drop a coin in the little red kettle outside of Walmart and Fred's when the person's ringing a bell. Because I've done my bit. Because they'll take care of that. But you see, if you look back at what verse 17 says, if you have enough money to live well, And you see someone in need. But do not get down and dirty with your pity, with your caring, with your suffering together with them. How can the love of God be in you? Now let's look at at 
verse 18. This is out of the Amplified Version. Little children, let us not love merely in theory or in speech, but in deed and in truth, in practice and in sincerity. That puts such great weight on me, quite honestly. Because see, I'll give you the for instance of where I'm at in, in my own world right now. God put it on my heart initially to buy two bracelets from the girls. So I bought two bracelets, sent the money via PayPal, paid for the bracelets, paid $5 for shipping. So all total I paid the money that was needed and the mom and the girls packaged them up and mailed them to me. And when I received them, I went, this is so cool. I'm going to wear these on a daily basis. And whenever I put them on, whenever I take them off, and any time during the day that God makes me aware of these bracelets, I'm going to offer up a prayer for Ben and his family. And I have been faithful to do that. And God whispered to me, you're being compassionate towards Ben. I've never met the man. And I've never met physically the girls who made the bracelets. And I've never met Becky, the mom, even though um, we've talked on the phone once. But I am in the dirt, getting down and dirty with them at their point of need. I spent of my own money. I intentionally called and contacted to make sure I could spend my money. And now that I have it, I am intentionally putting the bracelets on every single day and taking them off every single night. And throughout the day, as I'm aware, each time I offer a prayer and I doesn't go, oh, bless them, God, but I truly pray for them. And so God said, you are indeed, you are in practice, you are in sincerity, you are in truth, showing compassion to this family and this man who is suffering, even though you're physically not in presence with them. can actually do something that has real, tangible meaning from this distance? More than just dropping a coin in a bucket? More than just writing a check to Compassion International and saying I did my part? But I can truly be really involved with ministering to the needs of the people of this world in a way that means something. But you see, had I read the Facebook post of my friend who was announcing to his congregation and his Facebook friends that there was a family who was making bracelets because they wanted to raise money for their uncle. If all I did was talk about it and theorize about how cool it would be if something like that happened in my life, would I be willing to do that? Yeah, I could, I could motivate my grandkids and my, we could put together a little thing for somebody if there ever came a time in my, in my world where I had somebody like that. That would be, I could do that. That would be really cool. That would be very Jesus-like. But you see, God has taken me by his spirit because I felt compelled to do this. I really did. I don't know why other than it's the Holy Spirit of God compelling me to do this. This has been a pain, quite honestly, to have to put money out, get the stuff, 
package it, bring it over, make sure people get what they're supposed to. I, I was doing it really badly at the beginning, believe me. It was very labor-intensive. The process has gotten very smooth, thank God. And literally, I got an email this morning when I woke up, and it said, Pastor, Pastor, you won't believe it. See, they had a, at the store last night, they had a big event, and over $260 came in last night, and 80 of it was just donation. They weren't selling bracelets, so they just said, I'll give it to them. Yeah! Maybe it'll be twelve or fifteen hundred dollars when it's all said and done. I don't know. But you see, what I'm trying to say to you guys is this. We as Christians are compelled by our Father God. And, in, and, in, and we are motivated by the interaction of the Holy Spirit with our spirits to do something. Not just to talk about it. Not just to theorize about how we could be loving or should be loving. What I did with the children was theory. What I'm doing with the bracelets is compassion. And it's small, honestly. It's not impacting me that much. But it is a way for me to be Christ-like to my world. It is a way to get together with those who are suffering. In their suffering. Because if I was still only in theory... I would not have been so excited and so jumping up and down in joy when I heard that the cancer doesn't appear to be there anymore. Because I'm invested in this. I want to be in that living room. Oh man, I want to be in that living room on Christmas Day when the girls bring that check to their uncle. I, I selfishly asked mom if she would at least let me know how much when it was all said and done. But that's how much... I deeply feel this. I am compassionate in this situation. It is, it is so important to me. I've never met them. I don't know even what they look like. But God has given me the ability to join them in their suffering in this small way. And I can show love in this small way. And that's what we're called to do. And the thing that's so cool, verse 19, going back to the New Living Translation, our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Two things I see in that. Number one, going back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he said, do your good works in such a way that the people who are around you see what you do and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. He also said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So there's, there's a little bit you need to understand there. He said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because you're not supposed to be doing it for any glory for yourself. You're not supposed to be feeling all good about what you're doing. That's not what the motivation should be. The motivation should be, you should live your life in such a way that when people see your life, they turn around and go, wow, God is good. Wow, God is amazing. They don't say, wow, Pastor Bob is such a good guy. And unfortunately, right now, most of what I do, Pastor Bob, you're such a good man. You're such a great part of this community. We really love what you're doing for our community. That's what I hear on a regular basis. And it strokes me positively and I feel wonderful, yay. But I want people to go, man, I see Jesus in that guy. That's what I want. I want them to see that my motivation is not so that I feel better about myself or so that I can make a name for myself or so that I can promote things of my church. 
I want them to see Jesus when they see Bob Sugden. That's what I want. I want to be so compassionate. So much together with them in their suffering. That they truly feel like Jesus has come alongside them. And the thing that's crazy. I didn't even think this way as a Christian until about six or seven years ago when I went through my master's program. Because when I went through my master's program, there was a particular class and a particular lecture that I had to read. And it was like a light went off for me. Mercy and compassion is required in the Christian life. I thought it was just being holy. I thought it was just not sinning. I thought it was just loving God. And you see, I had gotten skewed in my Christian thought process. I I truly had gotten skewed to the point where I was so focused on God and holiness and purity and keeping myself clean that I literally was like a priest or a Levite walking down the road outside of Jericho. I couldn't come alongside those who were in suffering in great need because I might soil myself. There's a passage in the book of, I think it's Jude, and I preached it years ago. Snatching people out of the fire, but don't let yourself get singed with any fire and don't let even the smell of smoke get on you. And it was the whole focus was, don't let anything bad happen while you're doing this good deed. And it makes me want to vomit when I think about that. I preached that. Because the focus was on me. I want to love in such a way that people think of God This is the screen that's been in front of you all morning long. You may have read it already, you may not have, but it's out of Micah, chapter chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And I love the pictures. I literally found this as a Google search when I looked up Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Somebody had it on their blog. These three images of the hand and the heart and the footprint. Because what it says to me is that that whoever is following Micah 6.8, doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God, they're in it. They're viscerally in it. They're not just talking about it. They're not just sitting in a coffee shop discussing how good Christianity is. They're in the back kitchen, scrubbing the pots, taking out the trash, scraping the grease off the floor. Because that's where it needs to happen, to show the love. Let's pray.